Ecclesiastes. Uh, you may not even know where to find it. Page 907. You know, Solomon wrote three books. He wrote one book when he was young and in love. We call it the Song of Solomon, but it's really about the only girl he couldn't have. She turned him down stone cold. You can hardly blame her. When Solomon is proposing to her, he calls her a horse. I don't think that uh, was very smart of a man who was supposed to be so smart. And how would you how would you respond to this if if, if if somebody proposed to you like this? He said, "I've got sixty wives. I've got another eighty women I'm living with. In fact, I got more women than I can count. But you can be first. Why she turned him down? And I don't blame her one little bit. She'd already given her heart to somebody else." She'd given her heart to her shepherd. And Solomon comes along and, and does everything in his power as the prince of this world to persuade her to turn her affections to him. He offers her everything that this world has to offer. But she turns him down. And I love the way she does it. He speaks twice in the book. At the end of the second occasion, he said, she said to him, I am my beloved's, and his desire is towards me. That's a wonderful way to deal with temptation. She didn't say, I am my beloved." And my desire is towards him. That's not strong enough. His desire is towards me. Just think of what that means. The eternal, uncreated, self-existing, second person of the Godhead who created the universe, the one whom angels worship, the altogether lovely one, the chiefest among ten thousand. His desire, his, his desire is toward me. That ought to keep us from temptation. So he wrote one book when he was in love. A book of romance. He wrote another book when he was at the zenith of his intellectual power. A book of rules. We call it the book of Proverbs. One of the most interesting books in the Old Testament. Many of the Proverbs have to do with the fool. Well, Solomon knew what he was talking about. He had a fool for a son. And he knew it. But I, don't, I, I feel sorry for Rehoboam. Because Rehoboam had a fool for a father. Although Solomon had a tremendous reputation for wisdom, that wisdom of his turned to darkness in the end. Imagine marrying a, an Ammonite woman to be the mother of the son and heir of the one who was to sit upon the throne of David. Solomon was a fool. And he lived like it towards the end of his life. 
But he wrote this book of rules, and in spite of all his faults and failures, the Holy Spirit overruled what he wrote and inscribed into the Word of God a whole book of very sensible sayings dealing with all aspects of life. But he wrote another book when he was an old man looking back over the shipwreck of his life. A book, by the way, that he addressed particularly to young people. We call it the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a book of regrets. He wishes he could be young again. He wishes he could start all over again. He's made such shipwreck of his life. Done such terrible damage to the nation of Israel. Did more to destroy the nation of Israel than any other king who ever sat upon the throne of David. And this is a book of regrets. Chapter 1, verse 12. I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of men to be exercised therewith. I've seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. There's an old Danish fable about a spider that came down from the lofty rafters of the barn on a single thread. Down he came. And he anchored the thread to a corner of the window. And then using that long thread as his main guy rope, he wove his web around it. He had chosen a very busy corner of the barn. And he waxed fat and prospered. One day he was walking across his web and he happened to notice this strand that reached up and up into the unseen. He'd long since forgotten what it was. He thought it was just a stray strand, so he reached up and snapped it. And instantly his whole world caved in. That's what Solomon did. When he was a young man, he established diplomatic relations with heaven. There was a, a line in his life that reached up to the unseen. And then he waxed fat and prospered. And one day, forgetting all about the significance of this side of life, he broke off his relationship with heaven. And his world caved in. The book of Solomon reminds us that Solomon was not a happy man. He was a haunted man. 
And in the book of Ecclesiastes, he introduces us to the ghost that haunted him. In this book, he shows us how worldly people think, whether they're unsaved people or whether they're backslidden Christians. He shows us the perspectives and the prospects of the worldly-minded person. The book divides into three parts. In the first half of chapter 1, you have the preacher's subject, and then you have the preacher's sermon running down to the end of chapter 10. In the last two chapters, you have the preacher's summary in which he addresses himself particularly to young people. Now, he announces the fact that he is a preacher and he's going to preach a sermon. This is not a philosophical discourse. This is a message from God. And since it is a sermon, it has to have a text. I'd like to suggest to you how Solomon found his text. God had just been on a state visit to Jerusalem. He'd taken a walk around the city and he'd seen all the altars that Solomon had built all over town to various heathen pagan gods of his heathen pagan wives. God is infuriated what he sees. But then he went down into the valley of Hinnom. There in the valley of Hinnom was one of the most terrible abominations ever created by the warped and bent and twisted religious mind of demented men. It was an idol to Moloch. They tell us that the idol to Moloch was made of brass. It was a big, fat thing with a hole in its belly. And they would heat it until it glowed like a furnace. And then they would take little children. And while the drums beat to, to drown out their screams, they would place those little children on the red-hot arms of Moloch. And they would tilt back. Those little children would roll down into the raging inferno inside. When God saw that, he went to see Solomon he said, if it wasn't for your father's sake, I'd do it right now. But for your father's sake, I'll wait until you're dead. But I'm going to tear your kingdom in pieces. And I can see Solomon sitting in his study, shaken to the very core of his being. The terrible silence that followed the judgment of God upon his wicked behavior. Finally, he reaches up and pulls down a book off the shelf. It's a copy of the Hebrew hymn book. In those days, all the Psalms except one or two had been written by his own father, David. But I can see Solomon as he's turning the pages of the book of Psalms, and he comes to this statement. Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. 
It was the voice of his father speaking to him from beyond the grave. For that word vanity summed up the tragedy of Solomon's life. They tell us that that Hebrew word for vanity means chasing the wind. That's what Solomon had been doing for years. Chasing the wind. He tells us as he introduces us to his text and to his topic that if you're going to live just for what this world has to offer which is what the worldly man lives for then there doesn't seem to be any point or purpose in anything one generation passes away another generation comes the sun gets up the sun goes down the wind blows to the south it turns around and blows to the north. All the rivers run into the sea, but the sea is not full. All things are full of labor. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, or the ear with hearing. What we would call in today's vernacular, the rat race. Just a merry-go-round, going round and round and round not getting anywhere in the light of eternity just getting older having introduced us to his subject he gets down to his sermon and he tells us some of the things he had sought and some of the things that he had seen and some of the things that he had studied he'd gone in for everything that worldly people go in for. He began with the world of thought. It, it occurred to him that perhaps the real answer to life could be found in becoming an intellectual. He became the greatest intellectual of his day. People came from the ends of the earth to sit at his feet and listen to his lectures on psychology and natural history. Queen of Sheba came. She went away saying, the half was never told me. You're the greatest. But when he achieved success in the realm of thought, had a dozen PhDs after his name, renowned across the world for his wisdom and his scholarship, he said, I perceived that this is vexation of spirit. He discovered that the world of thought doesn't satisfy. You can sit in the most prestigious professor's chair in the country and be thoroughly miserable and totally unfulfilled because that's not where it's at having tried the world of thought he decided to try the world of thrills he decided he'd go in for pleasure became a royal playboy he indulged every 
possible pleasure that the ingenuity and mind of man could invent. He abandoned himself to the gratification of the lusts of the flesh. His harem was enormous. His resources were boundless. His revelry was unstinted and unrestrained. If he had gone past the royal palace in Jerusalem in those days when Solomon was going in for the world of thrills, you'd have heard the beat of the music. You'd have seen the obscene dancing on the Lord. You'd have seen things that could well have come out of Sodom itself. The world of thrills. When he had satiated himself with every possible pleasure that this world has to offer. He said, Behold, this also is vanity, chasing the wind. I said of laughter, it is mad. I take it, you know, at that point Solomon almost went over the brink into insanity. That's where that mode often ends. However, he, by God's grace, recovered himself just in time. Decided that the world of thrills was not where it was at. Having tried the world of thought and the world of thrills, he decided to go in for the world of things. Maybe that's where it was at. Make a lot of money. He became a mercantile prince. He founded a great commercial empire. He had great Tarshish ships that plowed the waters of the sea. He had camel caravans that reached all across the fertile crescent down into the exotic markets of the distant east and the wealth of the world flowed into his warehouse. He had the Midas touch. Everything he touched seemed to turn to gold. He was extremely successful. He was so rich that the very pots and pans in his kitchen were made of gold. When he had everything that money could buy, ten of everything, a hundred of everything, he said, I hated life. I hated life. One suspects that at this point he contemplated committing suicide. That's not where it's at. But you know that's exactly what our young people are taught in our schools today. At least they are in the country where I live. They're taught to go in for the world of thought and to go in for the world of thrill and to go in for the world of things. None of those things can satisfy the hunger of a human heart. These were the things that he had sought. 
Then he tells us some of the things that he had seen because Solomon was a wise man, although he behaved like a fool. That is to say, he kept his eyes open. He hadn't found it. Maybe somebody else had found it. Some of the things that he had seen. When I first came to North America, I was with a very large Canadian bank. They sent me to the province of British Columbia, up into the interior of the province, the great lumbering heart of the Canadian West. There my wife and I made a number of friends who were in the lumber business. I remember on one occasion we were invited to one of these people's homes and he had a magnificent uh, log cabin right on the edge of the forest. We went in and sat down in his luxurious living room. And as I sank into an easy chair, I looked across at the picture on the wall, across from where I was sitting, and I was astonished to notice that the man had a picture of a grinning human skull on his living room wall. It was a horrible thing. It didn't matter where you looked. You, your eye went right back to it. And it just hung there and gibbered at you. I thought to myself, whatever would possess a man in his right mind to put a skull on his living room wall? By and by, his wife called us all in for the meal, and as the others were trooping off into the dining room, I went up for a closer look at this thing. And I was astonished when I got up close to notice it wasn't a skull at all. It was a pen and ink drawing, skillfully executed. It depicted a woman sitting in front of an old-fashioned vanity mirror, one of these round mirrors. She had black hair that was piled up on the top of her head, reflected in the mirror. She had a lot of bottles and things in front of her that she had been using to uh, perform whatever it was she was performing. And now she was admiring the end result in the mirror. That was quite an attractive picture. Well drawn. Lots of detail. Interesting picture. As I stepped back from the picture, however, I noticed that all the different parts were coming back together again. And that the round mirror became the dome of the skull and the black hair with its reflection became the empty eye sockets and the jars and bottles and things she had became the grinning teeth. So by the time I got back across the room, there it was again, a skull. And underneath the artist had written just one word. Vanity. It is this concept of death. Writing the word vanity across everything under the sun that marks Solomon's theme in the second part of his sermon. He tells us of the vanity of time without eternity 
the vanity of a new leaf without a new life. The vanity of prosperity without posterity. Of wealth without health. There's a long list of them. For instance, he tells us the vanity of time without eternity. He tells us that he, he had his time pretty well organized. There was a time and a place for everything. A time for this and a time for that. Every single moment of time was organized by Solomon so that it would contribute something to his enjoyment of life. But then having told us how he had organized his time, the Holy Spirit breaks in and says, but God hath put eternity in their hearts. I suppose one of the greatest speakers, preachers ever to come out of Scotland was Thomas Chalmers. In his early days in the ministry, wasn't even saved. And he wrote a little pamphlet. He actually wanted to be a professor of mathematics in the University of Edinburgh. He wrote a little pamphlet in which he stated his very, very low views of the ministry. And in that pamphlet he said that he had proved by personal experience that a person could discharge all his pastoral obligations in three days, leaving him the rest of the week to pursue any hobby upon which he set his heart. He set his heart on being a professor of mathematics. And then came his conversion and his anointed ministry. Sometime later in his ministry was at a meeting of the synod of his church and there were a lot of other ministers there. There was one man who was very jealous of him. And he stood up in front of all the other ministers and began to read this pamphlet that Chalmers had written in his young days. And he cited it as Chalmers' low views of the ministry. And then with a sneer he turned to him and he said, Tell me, sir, did you write that? Chalmers jumped to his feet. Yes, sir, he said, I wrote it, strangely blinded as I was. In those days, sir, I aspired to be a professor of mathematics in the University of Edinburgh. But, sir, he said, what is mathematics? It is magnitude and the proportion of magnitude. And in those days, sir, I had forgotten two magnitudes. I had forgotten the shortness of time, and I had forgotten the length of eternity. That's what Solomon did. And if you're spending your life chasing the wind, that's what you're doing. Things he had seen and sought and studied. Becomes increasingly obsessed by the fact of death. I said that Solomon was not a happy man, but a haunted man. And that in the book of Ecclesiastes, he introduces us to the ghost that haunted him. For that ghost was death. He becomes increasingly obsessed by the fact that sooner or later 
going to die. Having lived for the wrong world. Preacher's summary is given in the last two chapters. He repeats his complaints about life. He relates his conclusions about life. He keeps on bringing young people into focus. In effect, what he's saying is, I wish I could be young again. I wish I could start all over again. Young people don't live for the wrong world. I never think of Solomon and his wail of despair over a misspent life as recorded in the book of Ecclesiastes without thinking of the great apostle Paul as he is sitting there in prison in Rome writing to his friends at Philippi. He's not quite sure whether he's going to be executed or set free. quite possible that he'll be set free. He looks forward to that as a possibility. There's much more that he wants to do for Christ. He'd like to evangelize Spain. He'd like to go on up and cross over to the Tin Islands of Britain, perhaps, or go across the Rhine into the Germanic tribes. Many untold millions still untold. He'd like to be set free. But on the other hand, he'd just as soon die. He'd already been to heaven once, and he had a taste of it, and he was an addict. Couldn't wait to get back. But he's writing to his friends at Philippi, and he's looking back over his life. And he can think of tens of thousands of men and women, boys and girls, who are going to be in heaven because they met a man called Paul. He's thinking of country after country, city after city, community after community, which he has personally evangelized, writing to the Romans, he could say, that he had fully preached. Church after church, city after city. He could say to the elders of Ephesus, when he had them at Miletus, he said, look, listen, look, look here, you fellows, you know my life. Those years I spent as your pastor right there, in Ephesus, there isn't a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl in Ephesus I haven't personally witnessed to for the Lord Jesus. He's left churches behind him in every major city of the Roman Empire. He could think of hundreds of young men out now blazing gospel trails to the far reaches of the world. Thanks to his inspiration. Writing to the Philippians, he says this. For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. How do you want to finish up? Like Solomon? Or like Paul. Shall we pray?